0: Well, we've been working through a section of case laws in the Book of Exodus called the Book of Ordinances. And we've been doing this for, I want to say this is week number five. And after last week's service, I got a great question about how uh, to apply uh, some of these case laws to our modern life. And I've now, of course, I've been trying to do that uh, throughout this little mini series. But still, I mean, some of these these case laws are more difficult than others. So so let me show you how this can work and how really uh, you ought to be thinking through as you read this in your own personal study, how these things might apply to you and how you can actually chew on them a bit and and get wisdom from them. So for example, the question came uh, from chapter 22, verses 16 and 17, which we covered uh, last week. And the question was, does a father still have the right to say yes or no to his daughter getting married? And does a young man still need to provide a dowry to, to his wife? And, of course, I did not answer these, these questions at all, and they're, they're interesting ones. So the question comes, okay, if this is God's law and part of his inspired and inerrant word, does this case law still apply to us today? And if so, how does it? So keep in mind, these case laws were specific to Israel's culture and their time and place and history. And what stands behind these case laws are these principles, otherwise known as the Ten Commandments. And when you work through the Ten Commandments, they're pretty universal. They can apply, and they do apply, to every uh, culture. And they're still good today, of course, and they apply to us even now, even as our context and how those principles may be hitting at our context are different. So let's just think through this a little bit. Israel as a context was set apart as a theocratic nation, a theocratic nation that is a nation founded by God with God as its king and a government and a legal system that was bound to his word. And there has been no other nation ever like this. Israel was absolutely unique. It's a one of one. Now that's not to say there haven't been countries deeply affected by Christianity. Of course there have been. I mean, all of Western culture really fits that mold. But modern America and and ancient Israel are two very different kinds of nations. And to think of America as a new Israel, as some Christians like to do, is actually a categorical mistake. It is a categorical mistake. No, that distinction, I mean, the one who inherits Israel's calling is not a particular nation state. It's the church. It's the church. The church is Israel under the headship of Jesus, or so Jesus teaches. Even so, when you look between the Old Testament and the New Testament into now, the church is clearly different from Old Testament Israel in a number of important ways. One way is that it's global and is not defined by a particular geography or borders or ethnicity or language. That's why I said I love confessing Uh, the Apostles' Creed, for just that reason. It's held in common. It's a unifying document of a summary of the faith that all Christians, no matter who they are and where they are, should believe. So the church is intentionally international as opposed to being national. The church is the reversal of Babel, so it cannot, it must not be isolated to one spot, which means the church will be in lots of different cultures. So just like Israel, you know, the church is called to be a light to the nations. That's why we resonate with the book of Jonah, for example. But unlike Israel, it does not have the power of the sword. That's why the church does not have an army, or at least it should not have an army, or why church discipline does not include force or financial penalties or the death penalty. So Jesus does not give his church the right to put adulterers to death like he did in the Old Testament, even as we recognize that such behavior is worthy of death and those who are unrepentant of it will actually suffer hell for it. No, it's why Paul says the sword has been given to governments like Rome or Washington or Montgomery. No, the the church's calling is what our, our book of church order calls ministerial and declarative. That is, we seek the good of whatever place we are in. Just think of Daniel in Babylon. And we declare to that place that our God is ruling. In fact, that's what we're doing right now. So that means then that the Christ church will be united even as it is not uniform. That is, all Christians everywhere are united to Christ, even as how that looks may look very different from place to place. So, when it comes to the question of how to apply Exodus 22, it may look different depending on where and when a Christian is living. So, let's just look at that law. It's clear that Christians must define the institution of marriage as Genesis 1 and 2 defines it. You know, no matter how, whatever civil government or political movements may reject Genesis 1 and 2, even so, it is also clear the cultural issues surrounding that doctrine and the practices that surround it may change in relation to what God has ordered for marriage. So for example, none of us think in terms of arranged marriages, or at least I assume not. If you are part of an arranged marriage, let's talk afterwards because I want to hear about your experience. I don't think that's happened in America for a long time. And if someone tries to do that, it's really weird. And we think, hmm, something's not quite right with that guy right? No, we don't do that, even though that was the norm for virtually every culture up until very recently. None of us thinks it's necessary to give a dowry, even as the giving of an engagement ring is a holdover of that practice. An engagement ring is intended to be a costly public pledge of faithfulness from a man to a woman, and that's what's in view here in Exodus 22. But let's ask that question about the father's role. Well, let's, let's mention a few things about that. First, it's clear that passages like this one have been used uh, to justify a form of patriarchy that the Bible does not endorse. Fathers and, and parents in general do not have absolute power over their children. They do not. Parents are stewards, not masters or gods to them. And the law assumes the fifth commandment in a good relationship between parents and children. It assumes that parents love their kids and are doing right by them, raising them up in fear and admonition of the Lord, which means the parents themselves are walking with the Lord and that the kids in turn have learned to love and trust their parents even when it's difficult. So of course, is there potential for abuse and sin with this law? Yes, But that does not invalidate the principle found with the fifth commandment. Now think of it this way. With such an important issue like marriage, should it be strictly emotional or romantic kind of decision? Like, oh, baby, I love you. Let's just get married. Or should we maybe be taking it a bit more seriously as a lifelong commitment kind of decision? I mean, isn't it a good idea for parents and their adult children to actually be talking through this? As in, when your sons or daughters are dating someone, to be thinking, how do you actually see them? Do you think this might turn into something more? Do you think they have the kind of qualities that warrant giving your life over to them? You know, I asked my in-laws, for example, for permission to marry their daughter, and it was a a long and uncomfortable interview. And there you know was no American law requiring that I do that, none. There's no biblical law either, by the way. And had they said no, which they obviously did not, but had they said no, there was no law stopping us from getting married. We just would have said, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to do what we want. Now, even so, the practice, when you think about it, the practice of asking permission is a good one. It's a good one because it recognizes parental authority and that relationship that's been set up by God and the responsibility as a man desiring to be a woman's husband to take her parents seriously and to have you know, thought through what marriage entails and to be able to justify why the marriage would be a good thing, a godly thing. Now, in a different cultural setting, Christians might come to a different set of practices in light of this law, and you know what? Rightly so. Even so, it does not undermine the validity of the principles that stand behind the law, and we can clearly learn from these case laws. So all we've been doing in this series, and this is what I've been doing just right now, is what the Bible calls learning wisdom. It's learning wisdom. It's understanding The basis of God's law, his character, and how he has ordered the world, including human relationships, and seeking to apply his word to our life and our times. It may look different in Ghana, or Tokyo, or Baghdad, or Greenville. So this is why God intends us to meditate on his word. Not just read a verse here and there, have a nice thought, and then there you go. No, meditate on his word. We're supposed to chew on this word and order our lives by it. Well, that was a very lengthy introduction to take us to our section today of of case laws. We're in chapter 23. We're just looking at nine verses, but we're going to be doing this exact same exercise. In fact, we'll be doing this for the next couple of weeks. This exact same thing in which we are taking these case laws, trying to dig down into them, see what the principle involved is, and see how we might learn Uh, from God, from these case laws. So we're in chapter 23, beginning with verse one. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor and his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that this would be a good time of meditating and chewing on your word. And I pray that lots of thoughts would come from this, lots of thinking and working through your word and how to walk faithfully with you in every aspect of our lives. To that end, we do pray the spirit would be present amongst us to give us eyes to see Jesus, that we might glorify him and love him most. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this section of laws is an outgrowth of the ninth commandment on bearing false witness, even as It's really an application of passages like Micah 6, 8, where it says, "You know, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So that's what's in view here. And these laws, these case laws, give a good example of exactly how this works, in particular as it involves our neighbors and how we speak about them, how we treat their property, how we treat them, in court and what it looks like to pursue justice and equity for everybody we encounter. So these laws can be broken down between the requirement for all individual Israelites, no matter who that Israelite might be, and that's verses one through five, and then the requirements for judges and for courts, and that's verses six through nine. So let's start with the uh, seven quick laws in that first section, that first five verses. So law number one that you see there, it says, do not spread, a false report. That is, do not give in to rumor mongering. Don't be a gossip. Don't spread a story you can't verify. And even if you can verify, you probably should think long and hard before sharing it. And this is true both, in, of course, in a courtroom, but outside of it too. You see, gossip is incredibly destructive, even as it's one of the most popular forms of entertainment among people in our town. And as James Jordan comments, rumors subtly prejudice everyone who hears them, whether they wish to hear it or not. So think about that. You know, if a friend tells you a rumor about somebody else in which it goes something like, oh, no, 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 I, I I heard a different story. I heard this. Your inclination is to believe your friend. In fact, you've heard the rumor before you've even had a chance to say no, probably. You know, rumors tend to be negative by nature. Not always, but the ones people like to share are typically negative, you know, painting somebody in a bad light. And even if the rumor in the long run was shown to be unfounded or false, it still tends to color the picture of that person to us. So this happens both inside and outside of courtrooms, obviously. But in the courtroom of public opinion, when a person is really the place where a person is most often condemned and destroyed. And this is a daily fixture of our lives. And it is telling you know, just how much God spends, how much time God spends talking about sins of the tongue. That is, you know, what and how we speak about other people. I mean, this has come up multiple times in this series on the law already, and it's telling how little we listen to him about this. And again, I can't say this enough. This is not just about avoiding certain words. It is not. You know, I've heard parents and teachers tell children not to use words like stupid or idiot. Those are bad words. And by the way, they are words that God himself uses. And then in the same breath talk horribly about other people. But at least they didn't use the bad words. You know, gossip is not a small thing. No, it destroys a community. And as the book of James might say, you know, gossip is set on fire by hell itself. All right, the second law says that we are not to join hands with the wicked man to be a malicious witness. That is we do not shake hands with, get the image there. We do not shake hands with, we do not conspire with a man guilty of some crime and agree to be a false witness on his account, you know, claiming he's innocent when we know better. And likewise, we do not conspire with a wicked man to be a false witness against an innocent party, like happened like what happened with, with Naboth, and famously, with Jesus. You know, in either case, the false witness, as Deuteronomy 19 makes clear, will be guilty of whatever crime he's accusing the innocent party of. So if you falsely accuse someone of murder and your lie is discovered, you now face the death penalty for murder. So that's an eye for an eye, like we've seen in weeks past. The third law in this section says that we are not to fall in with the many to do evil. That is, we are not to give in to social pressure to go along with the crowd because more often than not, the crowd is wrong. This is why uh, the phrase common sense used to be an insult. It used to be an insult. To have common sense was to have the sense of a crowd or a mob. The majority or or popular view will rarely, if ever, be the godly one. Now, usually, as, as Douglas Murray argues in his book, The Madness of Crowds, the popular view will disregard wisdom, context, and reason in pursuit of what it wants. You know, so for example, you know, don't be so quick to post. Don't be so quick to post and repost whatever the hot take of the moment is or jump on the bandwagon and condemning whoever, whoever your, your political tribe is condemning right now. You know, American crowds run on anger, vitriol hatred, and absolutely reject things like forgiveness and repentance. There is, that is never offered. Once you fall off whatever the political train is, it's forever, right? As Christians, it is far better. It is far better to hold your tongue and wait to see what the truth of the matter is before jumping to false conclusions and therein wrongly condemning or wrongly withholding forgiveness, this happens of course in casual conversations among friends all the time. I mean think about it. How much of your conversations about other people is in praise of them? Or perhaps just you know reporting facts about them. That's fine. Now probably more often than not it's really criticism or takedowns of somebody else. See this law fights against the social pressure and this really happens when a, a group starts, starts up like, oh, that guy, and here it goes. Now, this law fights against the social pressure to speak badly or falsely about our neighbors, and that pressure is immense. Well, the fourth law is directly related to this. It says, do not bear uh, witness under social pressure, particularly in a court of law. So, you know, if the first law is about gossiping, and the second is about intentionally bearing false witness. This law is about what happens when there's social pressure to say otherwise than what we know the truth is. And this is exactly what happened to Peter. It's exactly what happened to Peter when he faced social pressure to deny Christ. And this is what politicians and members of the media and celebrities face all the time. Will I go along with the crowds and appease them? Or am I willing to say a hard thing and go against them or not say anything at all? It is really hard to stand for the truth or an unpopular opinion when your friends, your neighbors, and your family might, it might not just simply be disagreement with you, but might just outright condemn you for your view. And I face this temptation all the time as a preacher. You know, I'd much rather entertain you or get some laughs going or affirm you rather than run the risk of offending you. Because I'm a human, right? We all face this temptation to give in to the crowd and say what everyone expects us to say. The fifth law is about being impartial. It says that we should not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Leviticus 19.15 actually flushes this out a bit more when it says, you shall not be partial to the poor or the rich or the powerful, but rather judge everyone in righteousness. So if you think about this, the poor can generate our sympathy. You know, like when we justify their sin because of their circumstances. You know, in these days, it is our inclination to side with those who claim to be victims no matter what. And if it's justified, I mean, if they've got a case, then yes, absolutely. We should be on their side. But Don't just side with someone because they claim to be victims or because they grew up in really difficult circumstances. Should we be sympathetic or empathetic? Yes, of course, but we do not sacrifice justice and impartiality at the foot of our emotions. Otherwise, we will sacrifice their dignity and their honor as image bearers. It will be another way of saying, I'm not taking you fully seriously as a human. The same can be said of the rich and powerful when we justify their sin because we fear them or we hope to get rewarded by them, by our faithfulness to them. No, God judges everyone, everyone fairly and equitably. He doesn't look at bank accounts or clothing or status or any of that stuff. No, he judges the heart. Well, we can't judge the heart, but we can seek to the best of our ability to apply the law fairly and equitably to everyone. And we're going to come back again to this, this principle here in a minute. Now, laws six and seven. Laws six and seven are difficult to swallow and are unique to the God of the Bible. Now, you can find many of the principles of God's laws in other cultures or religions, you know, so murder and stealing, are pretty much frowned upon in every single culture. But not these next two laws. These are unique to the God of the Bible, and it is the Christian distinctive. Law six says that if you see your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, that is, his property and wealth is essentially leaving him, bring the animal back to your enemy. Law seven goes even farther and says if you see a person who hates you, and their pack animal is struggling under its weight. Don't pass him by. No, stop and help. So imagine this as, as someone who absolutely hates you, absolutely hates you, and everyone knows it because she talks about you behind your back every chance she gets. Well, you see her broken down on the side of the road trying to fix a flat tire. It's not going well, and she's got all her kids with her. You stop to offer to help or give her and her kids a ride back into town. That's what's in view with these laws. And the way Jesus teaches this principle is through the parable of the Good Samaritan, in which a good Jew, you know, attacked and left for dead, is rescued by his enemy. And the hatred... Uh, between the Jewish people and the Samaritans was legendary. And it was religious and racial, all wrapped up into one thing. And the Jews so hated, they so hated the Samaritans that not only would they take the long road around so they didn't have to walk through their land, if they did have to walk through the land, they would knock the dust off their shoes because they didn't want to be touched by anything that was Samaritan. That's hate. And yet the Samaritan looks past his enemy's hatred of him and seeks justice and kindness for his enemy. And what makes this difficult for us is that we assume that we have to feel good about this situation. That is, that our emotions have to match our actions. Not at all. Not at all. The law demands that we do right by our enemy out of our love for God. And it's not interested in whether we have warm and fuzzies towards our enemies at all. That's beside the point. Now, to be sure, this law may lead to the easing of hostilities between two people, but it may not. I mean, nowhere in Jesus's parable does he say, and the Jew and the Samaritan became the best of friends, y'all. No. Now, could that happen? Sure. Could it not? Sure. You know, at the heart of love for enemy is a willingness to forgive, and it's costly. Nobody else teaches this. Nobody. No, it's usually the opposite. Love those who are like you and hate those who oppose you. That is our natural sinful disposition. We don't have to work at doing that. We just do it. And again, this is the Christian distinctive. Laws on love for enemies and forgiveness of those who are against you is found nowhere else but with our God. The law's concern, then, is to reflect God's own character, you see. It's like what Jesus says in Matthew 5. God makes this, his Son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That is, God shows kindness to all people both those who love him and those who hate him, and he's willing to forgive everyone. Now, more so, he wants to forgive. He loves when people repent and turn to him and find life. And if this is how God is, then as Jesus teaches, we are to act like God's sons and daughters and do the same. Okay, that's the first grouping of laws that apply to every individual Israelite. The second grouping of laws is addressed specifically to the courts and those who serve as judges. And there are four quick laws in this section. The first law in verse 6 completes the law, the thought of verse 3: that you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor and his lawsuit. So think of it this way: In the ancient world, like today, judges would come mostly from higher classes or higher strata of people, and the temptation would be for a judge to side against the poor in favor of people from his own ranks. And that still happens today. In Israel, you know, a judge can neither side with the poor or the rich simply on account of social standing. No, a judge must choose the way of righteousness, that is, being in right relationship with everyone, even when it may cost his social standing among his peers. The second law guards against a judge taking a case he knows is false. Again, think of the case made against Jesus before the Sanhedrin. That court knew it had no case. And so it went looking for people to bear false witness against him, even as they tried to make everything appear legal and in good order. And God says he will not let such a thing go. No, he will bring judgment on such courts. And as an aside, this is exactly what is in view when the Bible talks about a fool. A fool in the Bible may be someone who lacks experience and maybe makes dumb decisions, but more often a fool is someone who rejects God and goes his own way. That's why a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Or the way of an adulterer who says, I have done no wrong. I said, there's nobody to judge me. I've covered it. I'm good. Now, it may appear that a judge has gotten away with evil. It may appear legal and in good order, but God is not fooled, and he will act in his own timing. The temptation then, not just for judges really, but for all of us, is to live as if God does not see what we're doing. As if when we are committing that sin, we're the only ones there. We're the only ones who know our minds and heart. But he does see. He does judge the heart, and it's why he calls us to daily confession and repentance. It's why humility is one of the defining characteristics of God's people. The third law commands that a judge must not take a bribe. Why? Well, it will cloud the judgment of an otherwise clear-eyed judge, and he will side with the money. And it was standard practice in many cultures to bribe a judge or you know a governor of some kind, but it's anyone who's in power. And it's like in Acts 24, where Paul uh, remained in prison for two years because Felix, the governor, was waiting to get paid by Paul. He kept meeting with Paul, expecting Paul to give him some money. And had Paul kept with social practice and paid the bribe, he would have gone free. And again, God wants impartiality and justice. The way of the world is to side with those who benefit us in some way. And we just naturally side with those who are like us. We just do this without thinking. They look like us, they sound like us, they smell like us, and we, we cozy up to those we think can help us in some way and we show honor to those who have money or power and we despise those who don't. It's why one of the, the easiest ways to see how in tune with God, a Christian really is, is to see how that Christian treats those who serve him in some way. So how how does he treat servers in restaurants? How do they treat employees at a fast food restaurant? How, how does he speak to his garbage men or to janitors, if he even sees them at all? It's why James goes into a lengthy discussion about this in James chapter two. He writes, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's the whole reason right there. Hold no impartiality or hold uh, no partiality because of who you belong to. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So James is just applying Exodus 23 to his first century church. This too, this law of showing no partiality is a Christian distinctive because everyone else wants to do that. The fourth law is that a judge or the courts could not oppress a sojourner. That is, the courts could not work against or try to take advantage of immigrants or foreigners. There wasn't one law for locals and one law for foreigners. The sinful... The natural state of humans, of course, is to be against outsiders, and this was especially true in the ancient world. And there was, you know, if you think about it, uh, there was real bodily risk in traveling outside of your tribe or, or your city where you had no connections or no protections. And, of course, this is exactly what Israel endured in Egypt. It's why God says, you know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land. Of Egypt. So he's saying, remember who you are. You will not take on the character and actions of the world as Egypt did to you. No, you will take on my character and my actions and will treat foreigners and immigrants with kindness and fairness, just as I have treated you. Okay, so what does that mean for us? Does that mean, as some Christians have argued, the Bible compels us to have open borders No, America is not Old Testament Israel. It's not. And the American government has the responsibility to protect its citizens. It just does. Even Jerusalem had walls. The American government has the right and the responsibility to have immigration laws and to enforce them. No, the issue is how do you treat the least of these when you encounter them? Do you hate them? Do you respect them? Is it possible for you to have compassion on them? Do you see them as a stain or as a threat to our community? I mean, think of it this way. How would you have regarded Ruth, the Moabite, had you seen her gleaning from the fields? You know, maybe like the men who entertain thoughts of assaulting her, or the women who saw her as a threat or a drain on their own town, or as Boaz saw her according to God's character in his law. Now, remember what we said from the outset. I know I just, boy, did we hit a lot of topics right in a row, right? But remember what we said from the outset. These laws, they are an outworking of the ninth commandment on bearing false witness, and they get at what God's will for us in our everyday life is. Doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with our God. That's our Christian calling. Whenever anyone asks me, what is God's will for my life? This is what I tell them. This is what I tell them. Now, while these case laws may be different, nothing has changed from Moses till now, and that's 3,000 years of history, in terms of what God wants for us. And I think Christians, you know, have convinced themselves that what America needs is another Billy Graham or really big influential churches or to compete against the culture when really what God calls us to do in our ordinary daily lives is sufficient to move his kingdom forward, even as many Christians don't want to do this. And let's just be clear, you know, unless you are convinced that God actually does love you, that he has given his son for you, that he delights in you, that you are really and truly forgiven, that you really are a sinner and that you have life forever with him right now, we're just not gonna wanna do this stuff. We're just not. We're not gonna wanna love our enemies and show kindness to them. I mean, the only reason Christians will live like this is because they are motivated by God's love for them, and in turn, want to be like him. Otherwise, and we see this a lot in America right now, we will act like the world in Jesus' name. So at the heart of God's law is his character, and that same character should be at work in our lives. He loves us. He loves us, and he wants us to walk in his ways. That's our calling. Let me pray for Heavenly Father, this calling you have given to us is a good one. It's a hard one. I'd rather it be other things at times, but this is the distinctive. This is what it is to be in your kingdom. So Lord, I pray for us in our hearts and our minds and our feet that we will battle against our sinful inclinations to love those like us and hate those who are different, to not want to show grace and mercy, to revel in talking badly about others. Lord, may we be a people who know our sin, who know where we've been, who know what kind of evil we're capable of, and rather turn to you in confession and repentance and seek to live humble lives for the sake of the places you have put us out of our love for you. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.